Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to our first episode of Dinner at Fiola. We're very excited because in these next few episodes, we're bringing you our first story that we've been working on for quite a few months now. It's a story about the very political and very controversial beginnings of the International Space Station. The main purpose of the space station, although there's other science going on, is to learn how humans can live and work with ever-increasing safety and ever-increasing efficiency to open the space frontier. Yes, ultimately, when we think of the International Space Station, we naturally think about space and we think about science. There are other things coming along that how do you provide protein to the astronauts? How do you grow things on board the station? Can we use the plant biology to continuously reprocess the air? And then how are we going to live for years on other planets in confined environments? But what's kind of been lost in history is its very political and very messy backstory. In the early 90s, administrator of NASA was one of the White House's most controversial agency positions. And NASA's most controversial program was the International Space Station. This was a program that many in Congress tried to cancel year after year, saying it's too expensive, it's taking too long to build, and it's something even your buddy Bernie Sanders voted to kill in the early 90s. But in 1992, a government rookie from sunny Los Angeles moved to Washington to take over the role of NASA administrator. He ended up saving the space station from being killed in Congress, and he led its ultimate development through the early 2000s. And he was able to do this by essentially convincing President Clinton that the space station would be an opportunity to collaborate with our feared former Cold War rivals in space, the Russians. So yes, the space station is ultimately about space and science as it should be, but it's also about the reinvention of American government and international cooperation after 45 years of Cold War. This is a story about a government rookie named Dan Golden, who ended up becoming the ninth and longest serving administrator of NASA from 1992 to 2001. Dan's worked with three VPs from Dan Quayle to Al Gore to Dick Cheney. Which VP is most likely to collude with the Russians? None. Not even Cheney. <laughs> no. No, he would not collude with the Russians. He's a good man. I knew him before I went to NASA, and there is absolutely no way. And, of course, that means he served under three presidents, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush. According to some popular sources that we've heard, George Bush Jr. had a reputation of not being the sharpest tool in the shed. He wasn't from a STEM background. So how did he explain something as complicated as space to him? I didn't have a problem with George. It's not Junior, it's George W. Bush. Oh, I'm sorry Our about bad. that. But, 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 but the point is, he was the President of the United States, and people could disagree with some of his policy decisions. But on space, I had no problem communicating with him. Damn. All right. And even though he served under so many presidents and so many VPs, you will find out that this Daniel Saul Golden is really just another troublemaking boy from the South Bronx. 
I say never have I ever and then describe something that was bad. I drink, never have I ever stolen a car, gotten caught, and been thrown into jail. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> everyone, drinks. Everybody. everyone drinks to that. When I was 14, my friend Roy and I, let me, let me drink, we went to a used car lot. The door was open, there was a key in the car. We took the car for a joyride, and we put our collars up so we thought we'd look old. <laughs> and a police car saw us, so I say to Roy, hit it. We ended up by a lot, we ran out, they took out their guns. I mean, it was really, I was not the best of children. We were thrown in jail behind bars, and when my father and Roy's father showed up, I thought I was going to die. And the judge said, don't get into trouble again, and when you're 18, we'll cleanse the records. So I'm trying to find the best way to start this off, and I don't think Dan is going to like it very much, but it is important to start on February 10th, 1992, because this is when Dick Truly, who's the administrator of NASA at the time, walks out of the Oval Office shocked and confused because he's just been fired by President George H.W. Bush. According to the Washington Post, Dick Truly is so surprised by the news, he tells the press that he's floored, he can't explain it, and it is not his idea. Now, Dick Truly, after spending 37 years in government service, he's earnestly, clearly shocked to be fired by the president. However, it's also no secret to anybody in Washington that he's been having beef with Vice President Dan Quayle and Dan Quayle's people in the White House for a while now. So when the media gets their hands on this, they report that White House insiders speculate that Dan Quayle did get him ousted, and they say it's because the vice president and his people wanted truly to take NASA in one direction, while Dick Truly, who is legally given all authority over NASA by the president, he pushed it in another. Confirming all of the speculation years later is Dan Quayle's right hand in space policy who's left office and has kind of gone Corinne Steffens on everybody, publishing a government type of tell-all book. In his book, Dan Quayle's right hand in space policy, Mark Albrecht, he's oddly proud to admit that he had a direct influence on Dick Truly being fired. For Vice President Quayle and Mark Albrecht, their fundamental issue that they have with Dick Truly is that he seems to insist on preserving an old NASA institution from the 60s when it's actually now the 90s and in need of reform. And to understand what this old NASA institution means and why anybody at NASA would want to preserve it and protect it, we have to go all the way back to remembering that NASA is a product of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. We get into this Cold War in the 1940s when a lot of these older guys at NASA are born. No, no, nobody knows what Soviet Russia and its communist international organization intends to do in the immediate future. But at that time, NASA does not exist as an organization. 
Then, all of a sudden, in 1957, when Dick Truly and his people are approaching their 20s, they're listening on the radio that the Soviet Union just beat the U.S. to launch the first ever man-made satellite into space. This satellite, as we know, is called Sputnik. But what is the significance of the Soviet satellite? Why should we worry about the fact that the Soviet Union has beaten us by a few months in launching a satellite, something, a Sputnik that goes around the world? The weapon that we're all uh, after, and that is when I say all, I mean ourselves and the Russians, is the intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, this is a very scary situation for everybody because the intercontinental ballistic missile is the technology both parties in the Cold War are developing to nuke each other from afar. And what the Soviets just did was become the first to launch a satellite all the way out into space by attaching it to what's turned out to be their very powerful intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, if you can shove this satellite up 560 miles, you have enough power back of that thing to drive it across the ocean. So the satellite itself is not what worries you, but the power that was able to put that satellite up there in the air. And what we realize is that if we're behind in space, we're likely behind in our military and behind in our technology and behind in our science. Well, Nikita Khrushchev said just this week, he said it must be realized in the West but the Soviet Union is no longer a peasant country. It is dangerous to take this view. Well, I think we've been too complacent. So then all of America rallies and we decide we're gonna pump a grip load of money into our own space program called NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And we pump $25 billion of 1960s money, which is 150 in today's value, and we pump it into what may be a crazy ambition. We are going to be the first nation to land a man on the moon. Now, the crazy shit is, we actually do get it done with Apollo 11 in 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This is the glory days of NASA and America solidifying our dominance in space. I want you to know that I think I'm the luckiest man in the world. And I say this not only because I have the honor to be president of the United States, but particularly because I have the privilege of uh, speaking for so many and welcoming you back to Earth. Uh, I can tell you about all the messages we've received in Washington. Over 100 foreign governments, emperors and presidents and prime ministers and kings, have sent the most warm messages that we've ever received. They represent over two billion people on this earth, all of them who have had the opportunity through television to see what you have done. And it's not just space. There are a lot of good things happening on Earth because of the success of these Apollo missions. There are a whole bunch of spin-off technologies that come from the program, and we get things like integrated circuits, fireproof clothing, and even the cordless vacuum called the Dust Buster. So in this time, it really feels like a progressive, exciting time for America that all comes from putting a man on the moon. By this time, Dick Truly's an astronaut and in Mark's words, a bona fide American hero. 
and he and his old NASA institution people are in their 30s, likely working for this NASA. In the prime of their lives, they experience firsthand the prime of NASA with all of its glory and with access to all of its money. In the 60s, the folks at NASA have gotten pretty comfortable with taking up to 4% of the federal budget. Compare that to 2020 when NASA gets less than half a percent, this old NASA feels vibrant and glorious and it feels like this era for NASA is invincible and it's never going to fade. But 20 years later, by the early 90s, the Cold War has ended, the Soviet Union has broken up, and the U.S. is economically recovering from the 45 years we just spent on the Cold War. And even though NASA landed man on the moon and gloriously won the space race in the 60s, by the early 90s, Dick truly has taken over a NASA that feels very different from its glory days. Once the shining symbol of America's innovative spirit and technological superiority, NASA has grown old and unsure of the public support and of its own invincibility. NASA's had fatal technical failures. We pause together, mourn and honor the valor of our seven Challenger heroes. They haven't delivered on programs for years. But I'm extremely dismayed by the fact that the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been the dream of scientists since the late 1940s, which has been under development for 12 years and has cost more than $2 billion, simply does not work. And they've completely overrun their budget. The, the bottom line is that we, we cannot afford a program that, that appears to be a, a series of failures going into the 21st century. In a Washington Post opinion piece, one NASA whistleblower describes NASA at the time as an organization that's, and I quote, undoubtedly become corrupt, not in any venal sense, but as all bureaucracies become more or less corrupt as they become satisfied with their achievements. So what people are saying is that managers of NASA are still basking in the success that they had in the prime of their lives during the prime of NASA's Apollo era. It did not take long after the Apollo success for this dream to turn sour. They've developed a very powerful and very prideful image of themselves so when engineers and analysts would report technical and financial issues with projects, they couldn't or wouldn't acknowledge that there could be significant problems with the programs that they're the face of. And they'd carry on with an everything's going in the right direction attitude, sweeping problems under the rug, and maintaining face with the public and with Washington for as long as they can. Some would even say that they've become self-interested. NASA no longer exists to achieve ambitious missions like racing to send a man on the moon, but exists as a funding source that keeps their NASA employees, their aerospace contractors, and their scientific communities happy and fed. So NASA has gone from complete engineering triumph to complete political Washington bureaucracy. And the space station program, which is called Space Station Freedom at the time, that's at the center of a lot of this criticism. When President Reagan first announced space station freedom in 1984, Tonight, I am directing NASA to develop a permanently manned space station and to do it within a decade. NASA leaders testified that they would have it up in orbit by 1992, and they testified that their total cost to build the space station would be $8 billion. But now, in the early 90s, its costs have not only overrun, 
but it's grown to tens of billions of dollars, and it's looking like the hardware for Space Station Freedom hasn't even been developed yet. NASA has never before assembled a space structure as large as the space station and cannot fully anticipate the difficulties and costs. Also, the largest cost growth in the program may occur during hardware development, which has not yet begun. And also, there's some weird accounting going on, so nobody really has any real clarity as to how much this is actually going to cost. If we are told by NASA it is $30 billion, we are told by GAO is 118, and our subcommittee staff comes up with 180. We've got a serious problem that we need to look at. So this is all to say that everybody has a lot of respect for the NASA engineers and a lot of love for the space community. But in this period of time when Dick truly has taken over NASA, the look on NASA as an institution, this old NASA institution, it's not a good look at all. They look like our stereotype of a typical bureaucratic corrupt government agency that's gotten very comfortable even if they haven't delivered. Now the problem with being comfortable is, it's that it's a very dangerous position to put yourself in. Mark Albrecht, Vice President Quayle's right hand in space, writes in his book that he and Dan Quayle are just looking at a NASA that's clearly not working anymore. If we're actually gonna return ambitious space research back to the American people, we can't be designing and managing missions in the same ways that we have been if they just haven't come to life. We need a shakeup. We're about to hit an internet boom. We need to go out and seek new technologies. We need to streamline the way missions are managed and we need to become less bureaucratic. And I do wanna be fair, these issues did start before the 90s, so they're issues that Dick truly inherited. However, the buck does stop at him as administrator of NASA of the early 90s. So Dan Quayle and Mark Albrecht tasked Dick truly to come up with some radical streamlined alternatives for existing missions and programs such as Space Station Freedom. Now Dan Quayle and Mark Albrecht they did this thinking that this would be an opportunity for Dick Truly to reinvent NASA. However, it turns out that Dick Truly is a man of the old NASA institution. He's one of America's first astronauts, he's a bona fide American hero, and he's been a government serviceman for the last 30 plus years. So it seems that he's more compelled to maintaining the status quo, and he's not very interested in Dan Quayle's and this guy Mark Albrecht's radical NASA reform initiative. When Dick Truly comes back to Dan Quayle and Mark Albrecht, what he's supposed to hand to them is a report with a menu of a whole bunch of innovative and radical redesign options for missions like Space Station Freedom. But what he does hand to them is a report that essentially shows the same large, expensive mission designs that basically came off the shelf from NASA headquarters, but with some minor modifications. So he does fulfill the task, there are some changes in there, but really, nothing has changed that much at all. And it's hard to confirm why Dick Truly and this old NASA institution are so resistant to this proposed change, but what the next administrator would learn is that it's likely because of a mix of reasons. 
It could be because this is all dick truly and the folks at this old NASA institution earnestly know, you know, this is how we did it during the Apollo days and that was successful, so this is just how we do it. Or it could be because of their pride and their prideful self-image. The NASA team already designed this. There's nothing wrong with it. Why would you change it? And how dare you say that there's something wrong with what we're doing? It could be to save face. Because admitting that changing up their missions is the right thing to do, it may make them look previously incompetent to the public and to their connections in Washington. And it could be because of jobs. You know, this old NASA institution, they've created a very rock-solid program that's been feeding their employees, their aerospace contractors, and their science communities for years now, and they really haven't had to deliver on anything. If things change up, do we lose our jobs program? And of course, we can't exclude that Dick truly likely wants to stick to the status quo because of turf. I thought I and NASA run the space program. I didn't know the vice president and this guy Mark Albrecht ran the space program with me. And with turf also comes power. If we admit our failure and we cave in and do as the vice president and Mark Albrecht wants us to do, does that effectively make us their bitch? Whatever the reason is, from Dan Quayle's and Mark Albrecht's point of view, this just feels like, what the hell? We gave you a task to come up with streamlined alternatives, and you basically undermine the people in the White House by coming back with the same damn designs that you haven't delivered on to date. And this happens on multiple occasions over the course of a few years, and it really doesn't help Dick Truly that his people at NASA apparently are going to members in the House and telling them that the president thinks this new direction is a good idea, but we at NASA don't think so. In December 1991, Dan Quayle's chief of staff, three former NASA administrators, and Mark Albrecht, they get together in a closed-door meeting at the White House to make a big decision. Their decision is that Dick Truly, current administrator of NASA, has to go. So then the story goes, on February 10th, 1992, Dan Quayle finally convinces the president's chief of staff to convince President Bush to officially remove Dick Truly from office. And even though it's no secret Dick Truly and Dan Quayle have differences, being asked to resign all of a sudden in the middle of a presidential term, that still feels pretty fucked up. It definitely comes as a surprise to Dick Truly and to a lot of people at NASA and in Washington. And like when all high-profile bosses suddenly resign, it's an eerie day in Washington with a lot of open questions about NASA's direction. So once this all goes down, President Bush talks to Mark Albrecht, who was in that closer meeting that decided Dick Truly's fate, and he tells him, your job is to get me the best NASA administrator in history. Now, in February of 1992, when all of this calamity is going on, Dan Golden could not be further from this whole situation at NASA in Washington. In February of 1992, Dan is on one of the sexiest beach vacation spots in Spain. Now, to be fair, he's not on vacation, he's out there on business, and he's out there to close a big technology deal as a hotshot executive at a space and satellite company called TRW. 
I had gone to Torremolino, Spain, which is in the southern part of Spain on the Mediterranean, and there was a conference. It was called the World Administrative Radio Conference. The people in my group, uh, namely a man named uh, Roger Rush, had invented a new wireless system. This is 92 when wireless was just breaking on the scene. Dan and his colleague had invented something very bleeding edge for its time, so brace yourself. It's a 90s cell phone system that would essentially replace the Zach Morris brick phone. They had invented their own wireless system that would bring down the cost of each phone from thousands of dollars at the time to 700 bucks a piece. And oh yes, they would also be able to charge users 25 cents per minute. So it's something we totally take for granted today, and I just remember it being ludicrous that texting boys would come out to a $1,000 bill, but it's definitely bleeding edge for its time, and clearly Dan thought that there would be a lot of commercial opportunity for him with their new mobile phone invention. So Dan and his colleague go to this World Administrative Radio Conference, which is a telecom conference held by an agency within the United Nations. And the whole point of this conference is for member countries of the UN to come and to vote on how spectrum would be allocated across radio and wireless services like Dan's around the world. Now, spectrum is essentially radio frequencies that wireless signals travel over. And what's actually important to understand is that it's treated as a limited natural resource. So its supply is regulated nationally and internationally. And so what this means for Dan and companies like Dan's that are going to this World Administrative Radio Conference is that they need to go out and get member countries to vote for them to win the spectrum bandwidth from this UN agency. Motorola was the giant of communications at the time. Motorola went with 36 people. Roger Rush and I just went by ourselves, but we did a lot of homework. So Dan's competition in this fight for Spectrum is Motorola, who has just invented their own competing mobile phone system. Now, as you might remember, Motorola was kind of considered to have a monopoly over the telecom industry at the time. And they've come to this conference with a gang and an army while Dan just comes by himself and his guy who works for him named Roger. So once Dan gets to Spain, I contacted the U.S. ambassador to Russia. So with that, we were able to get the whole Eastern Bloc vote. And then I uh, invited all the members of the delegations from the Western Hemisphere, below the south of uh, the United States, to a luncheon. I hosted the luncheon, and I gave the speech in Spanish. I stood up there, I rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and I had my diction perfect. Dan's a Bronx Jew before the white flight and the influx of Puerto Ricans, by the way, so I really don't think he got the Spanish perfect, but we are going to give him this. No Americans ever speak the native language. I got a standing ovation, and we got the whole vote of the Western Bloc, and we walked away with 50% of the bandwidth. Dan beats out Motorola and wins the spectrum bandwidth that he needs for his wireless service by building international coalitions at the World Administrative Radio Conference. So you could imagine that I had visions of sugar plums, and, and I also had an idea that maybe what I would do is TRW was mainly a government contractor. 
I, I had a thought that we would get it going. I'd get private investment and take it private, and TRW would get their share. And the Cold War was over, and I wanted to make a billion dollars. So all of this is to say that Dan Golden was not thinking about Washington at all. Like everybody else at the time, Dan had just spent his last 25 years, his entire adulthood, going against the Soviet Union. TRW, where Dan is now the head of the Space and Technology Group, is a government contractor. And throughout the Cold War, Dan had led highly classified work building space technologies for the U.S. government. But now that the Cold War is over, he's thinking that he would take the wireless business that he just beat out Motorola for, and in some entrepreneurial effort, spin out a piece of it from TRW as his own private startup. And essentially, he would get filthy rich off of it and live the rest of his life as a billionaire. But on his way back from Spain, Dan gets a very unusual message. On the plane coming back, I would say that Roger and I had a little champagne. We had a very nice trip coming back, and when we got over uh, Canada, I decided to call my office. And my assistant said, you just got a call from the White House. And I said, what did they want? She said, I don't know. So I said, call around and find out what happened. I'll call you in a half hour. I called in a half hour. She said, you're in trouble. I don't know what's going on. Because Dan's group at TRW had been doing classified work for the U.S. government, Dan's first thought is that his team screwed up one of their government projects and someone at the White House was calling to basically give him shit. But when Dan calls the White House number back, it's Mark Albrecht. It's the man who's been tasked by President George H.W. Bush to find the best administrator in history. Fellow answers the phone. He says, hi, Dan. I, uh... I'm the assistant to George H.W. Bush for space, and he wants to know if you want to be the next NASA administrator. Wow! <laughs> it, was, it was a bit overwhelming. I had not thought about it, and my initial reaction was, I need to think about it, and I need to talk to my wife, which is exactly what I said. And then he said, but what do you think? I said, I don't know what I think. I'll call you after I speak to my wife. Sorry, this is a private plane, and you're able to call on the plane? No, it wasn't a private plane. Oh, they had phones on the plane back then. This, I'm old. you got to remember. <laughs> Dan hangs up, and that's kind of the end of it for the rest of his trip back home to L.A. For Dan, he just closed a big telecom deal. He's in the middle of a champagne celebration, and he's got tech money on his mind. Going out and being a public servant is not only a detour in his career plans, but it's also orders of magnitude lower in pay than the billions that he's currently dreaming about. So this is something he earnestly needs to think about, and it's something that he needs his wife's counsel on. He'll think about it at home, and in the meantime, he'll enjoy the rest of his celebratory trip back to LA. Now, as he's doing this, Mark Albrecht in the White House is definitely waiting for him. The plane lands, and hours later, I walk in the house, and as I'm walking in the house, the phone rings. Now, how did he know I was walking in the house? I pick up the phone, and this fellow says, Hi, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, What I think is I just walked into my house. I haven't talked to my wife yet. And then the conversation went something like this. Um, when are you going to be in Washington? Vice President Quayle would like to meet with you. And he said, today's Wednesday. How about coming back in the next few days? 
Now, at this point, Dan still hasn't had a chance to think about what accepting the administrator position actually means. But he packs up and he gets on a plane with his wife, Judy, to Washington. Now, on the plane, this is when Dan actually starts to think. And what he realizes is that getting a call to potentially take over an agency, that may sound glamorous to the outside, but the actual job of administrator of NASA, that is not a figurehead job. This is going to be very difficult and very painful. He'll have to work with the NASA employees to fix programs with major technical issues, and fixing technical issues is one thing, but working with the current NASA employees, that's gonna be a whole other challenge in itself. Dan knows from personal experience that a lot of the NASA employees are married to the status quo. Just a few months back, Dan, through TRW, had submitted a paper to NASA proposing smaller, cheaper, and new satellites for studying Earth. But as we saw with Dick Truly, Smaller, cheaper, and new is not exactly the NASA way of the early 90s. So NASA ordered Dan to withdraw the paper. Now, the media says that Dan was pretty pissed at the time. But in this moment on the plane when he actually has to consider if he earnestly wants this administrator job or if he's just going to Washington to waste the vice president's time, he realizes that there's definitely a camp of employees at NASA that he's certainly going to piss off by putting his hands all over the technical problems and by trying to reshape NASA in the way that he feels it should be reshaped. I was concerned about being able to have change occur really fast. I knew I was going to break glass. And quite frankly, for somebody who's an executive at a Fortune 500 company, there are definitely some financial reasons to say no to a public service job especially one that's going to be as politically difficult as the one he's been asked to consider. On Sunday, I was ushered into the West Wing of the White House, and there's a smiling Dan Quayle <laughs> getting up from behind the desk to welcome me to the White House. So Dan's at the White House, and he's about to shake hands with the Vice President of the United States. Now, keep in mind that Dan doesn't have the job just yet. This is actually his interview with the vice president. He reached his hand out to me, and as I'm reaching my hand to him, I said, Mr. Vice President, I don't want to be presumptive, but I'm going to ask you seven questions right off. <laughs> what Dan does is essentially turn his interview around on Vice President Quayle. He has concerns that this is going to be a politically messy job, and he knows that to turn NASA around, he's going to have to make some radical changes and he's going to end up pissing off a lot of people at NASA who are comfortable with the status quo. So he's put together seven questions for the vice president to answer. If the vice president answers them in line with what Dan has been thinking, then Dan will take the job. If not, then Dan will go off and become a 90s mobile phone billionaire. And I pried into what these seven questions are, but it seems that Dan is taking them to the grave. So this is essentially the gist. I'm not going to tell you what I, I asked or said because it's inappropriate that I say. But basically, it was the request that I be fully in charge. I didn't want any help. I would take 
responsibility for every single failure that occurred, and I would give the president credit for every success. I wanted the football to come to me. Up front, Dan basically wants to know, do I have your word that you'll trust me as the head of NASA? Will I have full authority over the agency? Will I have full support of the president to back my decisions? And will I also have full support of the vice president? And will we have each other's backs? Because I will have your back. I'll be honest when I disagree, but I'll have your back and I'll have the president's back as well. And it's kind of dope because what Dan establishes up front is essentially the one thing that Dick truly may have needed, which is complete trust and alignment with the White House. And speaking of Dick Truly, who just got fired in a pretty high-profile way, Dan also wants to make sure he and the president establish how he will be fired before he actually steps into the job. So I also wanted to discuss I would negotiate my firing before I took the job. That I felt it would empower me knowing I had an agreement if the president called me up and said, Dan... I, or his representative called me up and said, we'd like you to leave. I wanted them to know I'd be out of there. I didn't want to have any big discussion. I didn't want to beg for the job. If he lost confidence in me, he didn't have to go to the press. All he had to do was call me. And the day I started the job, I wrote my letter of resignation. I kept it in the upper right-hand corner of my de- drawer of my desk. So Dan asked his seven questions. And he doesn't really know how the vice president will respond, but the vice president does respond. And I'll be damned if Dan Quayle didn't answer each and every question exactly as I would have wanted. And then when he was done, he says, okay, what are you going to do now? With a smile on his face, and I said, I'll give you an answer on Wednesday, and this was Sunday. I went home. And then when I called Vice President Quayle, I dialed the phone not knowing what I was going to say. And I found myself saying, Mr. Vice President, I will take the job. And it was after that point in time, I was asked to meet with President George H.W. Bush in the Oval Office. And he had those two chairs. He was sitting in one chair, and there was some table in between us, and the fireplace was roaring. So Dan comes back home from Washington once again, and few weeks pass. And I was talking with Dan's wife, Judy, real quick, so I hope it's okay that I say this, but based on what Dan had told her about the aggressive questions that he had asked during his interview and his desire to make sure that his firing would be arranged up front, she just definitely didn't think that he would get the job in the end. But then on March 11th, 1992, as Dan's watching the news, he finds out that President Bush has actually nominated him to be the next administrator of NASA. So Dan quits his Fortune 500 job at TRW, and he starts making arrangements to go from being an industry executive to a public servant in Washington, D.C. He severs his TRW management agreement, he starts selling all of his TRW stock, and he cuts off any lucrative financial arrangement that he might have with the company to eliminate any potential for conflict of interest in his new government position. And what becomes very real in this process is that Dan's making a very big financial sacrifice to go be a public servant. He's a top-tier executive at one of the nation's most lucrative aerospace companies. He's just won a big telecom deal against Motorola, and just a month ago, 
he was thinking about becoming a telecom entrepreneur of the 90s. And now in March 1992, he's, I don't want to say he's throwing it all away, but he's definitely, along with his family, making a real sacrifice financially to go be a public servant. And to go be a public servant of a very controversial agency where somebody just got fired at that. Now, meanwhile, the government continues on, and a week after Dan's nomination, the Senate committee that looks over NASA holds a hearing on NASA's budget for the next fiscal year. So they meet with Dick Truly, who's holding office until Dan gets there, and they meet with him for what will be the last time. And Al Gore, who's in this committee at the time, he takes this opportunity to just very bluntly ask Dick Truly, like, what the hell happened with Dan Quayle and Mark Albrecht? And what he wants to tease out is that basically Dick truly got canned because he disagreed with the vice president and Mark Albrecht. And Dick truly very diplomatically, very elegantly says he doesn't know about the politics that led to his firing. And he did go to President Bush about his issues with Dan Quayle. However, it's inappropriate to say exactly what was discussed. And even though Dick Truly's being very diplomatic, very classy about it, Al Gore goes in and basically says, you know, we all know it's because you disagreed with Dan Quayle and Mark Albrecht, who's a guy that's not even in a confirmed White House position. So what he's really concerned about is that the vice president and his buddy Mark Albrecht are trying to run the space program out of the VP's office when the space program is really NASA's jurisdiction and the administrator's jurisdiction. So his feeling is that this guy, Dan Golden, who's been nominated to be the next administrator of NASA, he better be somebody with a backbone against the VP and against this guy, Mark Albrecht, and he better not just hand NASA over to the VP and Mark Albrecht on a silver platter so NASA could be run out of the VP's office. Now a few weeks pass, and on Friday morning of March 27th, 1992, Dan's back in Washington to prove himself in a Senate confirmation. He comes with his wife Judy, his daughters Laura and Arielle, who were in the 20s at the time, as well as his son-in-law Gary. They've all flown in from LA to come to this confirmation hearing and to watch Dan almost become the next administrator of NASA. And all of the senators acknowledge and thank Dan's family for making this pretty big financial sacrifice that they're making and allowing Dan to go be a public servant and allowing him to run NASA. However, very quickly, this hearing stops being a family affair. Now, let me just set the stage for what I had to go through at my uh, confirmation hearing. When I went in to speak to Senator Fritz Hollings, who was the chairman of the confirmation the authorization committee for NASA, he said, Mr. Golden, why do you want this job? Senator Fritz Hollings opens up, and what he wants Dan to really understand, if he hasn't already, is that this is not going to be a glorious job at all. NASA has a slate of technical issues. The Hubble telescope is blind. The Galileo spacecraft on its way to Jupiter. It can't send signals back to Earth. The shuttle is not operational. The space station spent its full budget. It's supposed to be up in space. It doesn't even have parts and bushel baskets yet. They're still living in the past. NASA is out of touch. It has no vision. And the Senate's not just going to give you more money to fix these issues. 
There are homeless people sleeping on the grates by the State Department, so you're gonna have to get NASA to deliver on these missions without being able to throw more money at the problems. And on top of that, NASA thinks its budget is gonna go from 14.3 billion to uh, 25 billion over 10 years. I wanna tell you, I'm speaking for the US Senate. You'll be lucky to get a budget flat, 14.3 billion across 10 years. Do you really want this job? Did so, you? Did you really want the job? Yes. I had already done my analysis. I knew what I was going to do. And then it comes time for Dan to make his statement to the Senate. And the statement that he's prepared is a passionate one, and it's a one about change. If confirmed, Dan will bring total quality management to NASA, which essentially means that he'll hold everybody accountable for the overall quality of NASA programs. And if confirmed, he'll work with the Congress to actually deploy space station freedom by the end of the decade. And of course, if confirmed, he's gonna go deep into the cultural roots of NASA to implement institutional change. He'll consult Congress on a regular basis. And lastly, if confirmed, he will be in charge of NASA. Dan sounds very bold, very confident, very enthusiastic, and he feels very fresh to the Senate. But then Al Gore speaks up and he says, you know, you ended your speech by saying that you're gonna be in charge of NASA, but I really wanna test that cause you know, the last guy who just ran NASA before you, he got fired because he disagreed with the vice president and his buddy Mark Albrecht. But Dan has already established this during his interview process. If you remember from the questions he asked Dan Quayle, he wanted to make sure that he would have full authority over NASA and that he would have the full support of the president as well as the vice president. So Dan responds very bluntly and very boldly, but very politely that he's already discussed this with the president and the vice president. They've indicated that they would love for Dan to be in charge. And that's actually the reason why Dan agreed to take the job in the first place, because he does not know how to manage if he cannot be in charge. And he does not know how to manage if he doesn't have the confidence of his boss, the president. By the end of his confirmation, what then-Senator Gore in particular decides is that Dan does have the backbone to take over this very politically fragile position. And what Senator Fritz Hollings decides is that Dan is a fresh change that NASA needs. He has the fire in his eyes and the fire in his belly that the Senate just has not seen in NASA for a very long time. The weekend passes and a few days later, on March 31st, 1992, the Senate unanimously confirms Dan as a new administrator. The following day, Dan gets sworn in by President Bush in the Oval Office, and even though the job to come will be painful, and even though Dan and his family are making a big financial sacrifice, this is still a pretty momentous day for Dan and his family. My father and mother and daughters and son-in-law were at my uh, at my swearing-in ceremony in the Oval Office. They were beside themselves. You have to keep in mind that Dan may have been a hotshot executive in his 50s, but really where his roots are and where he comes from is that he really is just another troublemaking boy from an immigrant family in the South Bronx. My father was first generation American, I'm second. My grandparents came from four different countries, Romania, Russia, Poland, and Austria. 
So they came from four different places. They came here with nothing. They never had any significant jobs. So it was, it was a, just an a unbelievable experience that here I was, second-generation American. I'm working for the President of the United States. Now, Dan swearing in is clearly a great moment for Dan and his family. But now, it's official. He's now on the hook for changing NASA from the inside out, and he's now on the hook for getting NASA to start delivering on programs. Were you nervous at all? No, but I was pissed off. Because my parents and children and son-in-law, we had a beautiful luncheon. And then I went over to NASA to just tell the people how happy I was, and I had an introductory speech. And there were a whole group of people gathered around, and basically I said what I said at my confirmation hearing, that we're gonna have change at NASA. And I described exactly what I was gonna do. Essentially, Dan gives the same speech that he gave the Senate during his confirmation hearing. NASA's gonna change, they'll have total quality management, they'll deploy space station freedom by the end of the decade, and they'll dig deep into the cultural roots of NASA to implement institutional change. And of course, lastly, Dan will be in charge of NASA. Up until this point, everyone's been pretty excited to bring in somebody who's willing to transform NASA from the ground up. Dan Quayle, President Bush, and the White House, they're just excited to bring in somebody who feels like their teammate and not their opposition in reinventing NASA. The people in Congress, they're excited to back somebody who's willing to take on this challenge and will have a backbone and accepts that he won't get more money to do it. But now, Dan is giving his same spiel about transforming NASA to an entirely different audience. This audience that's listening to Dan give his speech, they're the NASA employees for years who have stuck to the status quo. These are the people that gave Dick Truly that report with the same old mission designs when the White House asked for radical, streamlined alternatives. And these are the employees who went up to the Hill and said, the president thinks this new direction is a good idea, but we at NASA don't think so. So after I finished my talk, I expected a little round of applause. And a woman who was one of the was the administrative assistant to someone who ran the space science uh, uh, activity at NASA, says out loud, you can't do that. And there was applause. The folks at NASA that Dan is addressing, this old NASA institution, they do not want Dan to come in and start changing things up. And it could be because it's this NASA that's the only NASA that they know or it could be because they're prideful of what they've put together so far. It could also be because they want to save face and they don't want Dan to come in and present their work as flawed to the public. And it could be because of jobs because smaller budget means less jobs. And of course, we cannot exclude that this old NASA institution doesn't want Dan to change things up because of turf and power. This NASA is the turf of the old NASA institution. It's not for some guy from industry who comes walking into Washington to take over and change up how he sees fit. Whatever the reason is, they do not like what they hear. They do not want this new guy coming in and telling them that what they've been in charge of and what they've been leading to this day is wrong and has to change. 
and they are not afraid to let Dan, their new boss, know that they are not going to let him change things up so easily. And I said to myself, I didn't leave California to come back for this. That ain't going to happen. So he responds, I didn't lose my cool, but I just had a great level of disappointment. But I said, I'm disappointed, but not surprised. I'm not going to be vindictive. I will try and do the best I can, but I'm not going to put up with a bunch of crap. And they were not used to that. So I was going to allow a period of adjustment, and then at some point in time, I wasn't going to put up with it, and they're going to have to leave because I certainly weren't going, wasn't going to. And this is where we end the episode this week. Next week, Dan actually starts his job as a new administrator of NASA, and he's on the hook to start making momentum on space station freedom. But as he's been warned, this is going to be a very politically messy job. I found they were sending faxes up to the U.S. Congress to staffers, powerful staffers, undermining what the President of the United States said. What would be an example? Well, the, the, the President had a budget that had a specific task that had to be accomplished, and they would send up, it was faxes, it's a long time ago, but they, and I, I saw them, they send faxes up there telling the staffer it's okay even though the president has taken this position this is the right way to go that's treasonable so i do want to give a disclaimer to everybody now that the first episode is over i'm still understanding all of the nuances of the story so if you are personally involved if you want to negate any parts of the story or if you want to add on to anything please 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 reach out in the comments and big thank you to everybody who listened in this episode, political clips are provided by C-SPAN, story is edited by M. Fei Shin, and Dan Golden is co-interviewed by Rachita Jane. <laughs>